Psalm 119, verse 73. Your hands made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. May those who fear you see me and be glad because I wait for your word. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Oh, may your loving kindness comfort me according to your word to your servant. May your compassion come to me that I may live for your law is my delight. May the arrogant be ashamed for they subvert me with a lie, but I shall meditate on your precepts. May those who fear you turn to me, even those who know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes, so that I will not be ashamed. My soul languishes for your salvation. I wait for your word. My eyes fail with longing for your word while I Say, when will you comfort me? Though I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, I do not forget your statues. How many are the days of your servant? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? The arrogant have dug pits for me, men who are not in accord with your law. All your commandments are faithful. They have persecuted me with a lie. Help me. They almost destroyed me on earth, but as for me, I did not forsake your precepts. Revive me according to your loving kindness, so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. You established the earth, and it stands. They stand this day according to your ordinances, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have revived me. I am yours. Save me. For I have sought your precepts. The wicked wait for me to destroy me. I shall diligently consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. And Father, we do thank you for this word. Lord, we ask that you would help us now as we study it, learn from it, and apply it to our lives. You are good. And we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen. So this Psalm 119 is is an acrostic, as Rick mentioned in previous weeks. Uh, The the author took the Hebrew alphabet and, and basically started each verse with the letter of that alphabet. It really is a beautiful picture of creativity. Um that that in some respects we miss that that unless you're a, a, a native hebrew speaker which i've studied hebrew but it's certainly not my my mother language and i recognize that as beautiful as this text is translated into the english or any other language it's beautiful in our language and in, in in english it's beautiful in every language but i can only imagine how much more it would be if we could see it in its original form and so today, the three stances we're coming are Yod, Kaf, and Lambdeth are the three letters. And the psalmist, nobody really knows who this is. Many accredit this psalm to David. It works for me. He's penned so many uh, psalms. He had so much persecution against him. And so this sort of would fit him. And if not him, then it doesn't really matter. The principles still remain the same. And he begins... 
with this first verse that your hands have made me and fashioned me. And this is the starting point, I think, for, for, for the Bible. That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That, that here this writer recognizes that the first and the most important thing is recognizing that God created him. It sounds so much like Psalm 139. If we turn over just a few chapters uh, towards the front of the Bible, if we come to Psalm 139, verse 13, we read, this is David. And he says, for you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. He recognizes that, that in the womb of his mother, that God was the one who was putting together all of the parts. He says, I will give thanks to you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance in your and in your book were written the days that were ordained for me. When yet there was not one of them. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Going back to Psalm 119. This is just a wonderful way for us to understand our lives. The evangelical Christian body believes in the sanctity of human life because we see that in the scripture over and over and over again that creation is at inception that god is forming and creating i remember before i was a believer i was i guess i was a, a walking sort of contradiction at, on one side i sort of believed in the theory of god and i, I had a sort of a godward bent heart but at the same time, I was also told and reasoned from science that, that evolution was the truth. And I remember laying in my bed as a younger person before I'd come to know Christ, thinking upon the whole evolutionary concept that, that there was just nothing. And then, then I became something through this mass explosion and a series of accidents and pondering my life and before life and that thought of just the candle being snuffed. It was a terrifying thing to think that I could be so much and experience so much in this life that I could see and touch. But then that thought of considering eternity or whatever happened, it was just emptiness. But then when I became a Christian, I started seeing what the Bible says. Those feelings started going away. I didn't have those late night sort of tremors fearing about stepping over an eternity. And the psalmist begins here. Your hands made me and fashioned me. That he understood that, that he, along with you and me, that we're not an accident. You might have been a surprise to your parents, but you were no surprise to God. That God, before the foundation of the earth was created, he knew you. He formed you. He had a plan for you. And so the psalmist goes to him for help. He says, give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. About, I don't know, it's probably two years ago, I had a horrible incident. And I used the word horrible. 
It was me and a sewing machine company. I want nothing to do with sewing machines. When I first got married, Anna liked sewing machines. Sewing machines are expensive. And I know they're like important. You know, they make clothes and quilts and stuff. Creative. They're, I know, but I understand man tools because they make sense. I like to use them and they're fun. Like chainsaws and all that. Like, but we don't want to go there. I didn't have any incidents with th- those companies. And so this, this sewing machine that I bought Anna when we first got married, it started running rough. And I was like, oh man, I thought I jumped on that hand grenade and bought it for her like eight years ago. Now I'm going to have to like, you know, throw a bunch of money into another one. And I'm like, well, don't worry, Anna, I'll take care of it. I'll start calling around. I will, I'll get it tuned up and that'll be fine. And so as I'm going through the phone book of trying to figure out where to, where to go, I chose the one company that was endorsed by Singer, the manufacturer of our sewing machine. So I take it down to them and I say, I just want a tune up. And I realized walking into the place that I was out of my element. I, I did not fit into the demographic. I think I was the only man in there and I was bringing it in like I was getting an oil change. And the guy said, okay, no problem. It's going to be whatever it's going to be. Didn't hear anything for two weeks. I said, hey, what's going on, man? He's like, oh, we haven't gotten to it yet. But this afternoon, my technician is in. And so then he calls me the next day. He's like, hey, everything was working great. But uh, all of a sudden, this part broke during, our, during the tune-up. I'm like, what? Don't you guys just slap a little oil and like do whatever you do? He's like, yeah, but the motherboard went out. But I'll, this is what I'll do. This, this sewing machine's worth X amount of dollars. We'll keep it. And I'll sell you a different brand for this amount of money. And I'm like, that doesn't seem right. And, and, and then we, we kind of went back and forth. And I was so, I'm like, just give me the machine, broken parts and all. I'll fix it myself. I don't want to take your machine. And then as soon as I got the, I went down, I picked it up. I got in my car and I drove till I was supposed to go to somewhere else in Escondido. And I remember sitting in my car on my phone looking up, what's the headquarters for Singer? I'm gonna I'm gonna solve this problem. And so I'm there in my car, like on hold for forty-five minutes or an hour late for a meeting because I needed to talk to Singer somewhere in like Kentucky or something. I finally get a hold of them. I said, Listen, this this company's endorsed by you. And they tell me that there's this problem, and I think he's just ripping me off. And really, this isn't even about me. I'm thinking about all these women that are in there getting taken advantage of. You need to do something. And they're like, well, that doesn't sound right, sir, because we have those parts. We stock those parts. I'm like, that's right. They said, just send it to us. We'll look into this company. And within a week, we had the thing back. They fixed everything. Ran smooth as can be. I didn't have to pay a dime. And it's still good. And the whole point of this is when you have an issue with something that's made, you go to the manufacturer. You go to the people that created that knows all of the inward parts because they're the ones that are going to be able to actually take care of the problem. And so as the psalmist recognizes that he's created by God, he goes to his creator and says, you created me. You've designed my purpose to worship and to serve him. And so as he's doing this, he recognizes that his sinful nature is causing problems and that the solution is in the word. 
And he says, help me, Lord, give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. I know that you've revealed yourself to me, but I can't do this on my own. So would you help me? It's beautiful. He goes on to say, may those who fear you see me and be glad because I wait for your word. There's a, it's not bad. I've, it's just been going around a lot. I, I, I have a friend, Rick Warren, who I'm not opposed to Rick Warren. I have nothing against Rick Warren. And I don't even think what he said is, is necessarily wrong. He, he says this. He says, what God says about you is eternally important. What others say about you isn't. Now, now there's true. We want to live our lives and we want to please the Lord. But people have taken sayings along this line and said, well, I don't care about what other people think. I can just live my life. I don't care what anybody thinks. I can do what I can do. And God is all I care about. But the reality is they don't really care about God. It's just that God can't come and say to them, hey, what you're doing is wrong. And so then they can say whatever they want. And I've been thinking about this phrase a lot in light of this passage. Because what does the psalmist say here? He says, may those who fear you, those who walk with God, those who've come to him for understanding, said, may those people who are godly, that's lives, that they're in alignment with you, may they see me and be glad because I wait for your word. I love being around people that are on fire for the Lord. Like there's just something energizing. That to be around a group of people that are passionate about walking with Christ. And then as I like grow in my walk, there are those people that, that when I look at their lives, I think, man, they've just walked the walk. They've ran the race. George Farrington is one we named our son after his, like we gave his first name. We gave our son as a middle name, his first name. Because George, who is a pastor here, he's just a guy that has like walked the walk. For many years, and he had his 88th birthday, and he said to thank you all for the card. But when I live my life and I get like a message from George, whether he emails me or he calls me and he gives me an attaboy, he says, man, Gunner, like I'm so proud of you. Like you're walking the walk. Hang in there. You're doing good. I can't tell you the, the joy that that brings my heart. My, my language teacher, Thomas Rahm, that I, in seminary, he's another guy that when, when, when my life pleases him and he sends me a note and he says, hey, you're, you're doing good. Keep the fight up. Keep going. Pleases my soul. And I think that there's a lesson here. If you're walking with the Lord, like I think this is part of discipleship and you see a young believer, somebody who's walking with the Lord, but like tell them. You know, it just blesses my soul to see you do the right thing with our kids. It's so important. It's like, I'm so pleased, Grace, my six-year-old daughter, that you did the right thing and that you please God. That brings joy to my heart. So made those, and this is his desire, may those who see me, who fear you, see me and be glad because I wait for your word. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let's read that one one more time, verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness 
You have blessed me? It says you've afflicted me. He's going through some difficult time. And, and this, this is going to kind of unravel itself. But the psalmist in the midst of his difficulty, as he goes to God, he knows who God is. He says, your judgments are righteous. When you give judgment, it's correct. It's right. And in your faithfulness, you bring me affliction. And it's so important for us as believers to have a, an understanding of theology of suffering. Like, what's, what's the issue with suffering? Sure, there's, there's, there's suffering as a consequence of sin. There are plenty of people who are suffering consequences because of their own sinful nature and choices that they've made that have natural consequences. There's other consequences about living in a fallen world. Like, like simply because sin entered the world, death came. And we've moved from, you know, the second law of thermodynamics. Everything's moving from order to disorder. Our bodies are breaking down. We do dumb things. This is, I'm talking to myself. Anna doesn't understand me. Well, I think a lot of girls don't understand guys in large part. I've heard that a lot since I've had a son. And I look at the moms that just shake their heads. I just don't understand them. And like, what do you mean them? Like, what are you talking about? Them, males, that create the male creature. It's like, I don't know, they make perfect sense to me. Like, last night, I, I bruised my ribs last Saturday. And I tell Anna last night, I'm like, I was going to take yesterday off from the soccer game. I'm like, I got to go down there. And the team looked at me, they're like, hey, take it easy, Gunner. Like, just don't go hard, just take it easy. And I'm like, I don't have that part of my body. And so there are things that I've done that there are consequences. Scott and I talking this morning. He's like, man, all this stupid stuff is starting to catch up with me. I think I might have to go have another, another neck surgery five concussions later. I'm, you know, I'm still not learning. So there are some, sometimes we suffer just because of our choices. But now there's also suffering that happens because God is doing a refining work in your life that he's, he's either wants to, to manifest himself to you and to others through your life that he wants to bring glory to himself through your life. If you turn with me over to John chapter nine, I don't think we live in, we obviously live in a very different world than during this time. We don't come across the blind person and we don't necessarily relate it to sin. Like, hey, what's what's what sin happened here? That's not our we kind of in our in our post God era. It's kind of like, oh, that's unfortunate that that happened or whatever. But the story unfolds in John chapter nine, verse one. And he that's Jesus passed by. He saw a man blind from birth. So they're walking along. There's this guy sitting down who's probably begging. He doesn't have his sight, so he can't work. He can't get, a buy, get along. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he would be born blind. So they see this guy and they think, man, this guy sure is suffering. That's unfortunate. It, it has to be because of sin. So was it his sin or is this a consequence from his parents' sin? 
And Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him, the father who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no light can work. Well, I'm in the world. I am the light of the world. When his disciples said had when he had said this, he spat on the ground and made a clay of the spittle and he applied the clay to his eyes. And the guy eventually regained his sight. I wanted to go all that way down because I just think it's one of the best lines of the Bible that Jesus spits on the ground, makes mud, puts it in the eye, and the guy can get his, his sight again. Going back to Psalm 119, or well, maybe not. How am I in time? A few people have been concerned that I'm going to go for two hours since I had two weeks off or three weeks off. I think we got time. We can go to Romans 5. So Jesus looks at this guy. His disciples say, why is he like this? And Jesus' response, he was born blind. As he was being formed in the womb, God said, I'm not going to give this man his sight. And the reason is, is because whenever this man reaches this point, he's going to be on this road. He's going to encounter the Messiah. The Messiah is going to walk by. They're all going to draw their attention to him. Jesus is going to spit, make mud, and heal his eyes. And the purpose is that God would be glorified through that instance. So that in this, from a human perspective, this very catastrophic thing of not being having sight, horrible for a human. Like just talking with the people that are in the process of losing their sight. Like it's not pleasant. It's scary. But God had a plan in this guy's blindness. And I look at people like Joni Erickson Tata, who, who was a successful woman, suddenly becomes a paraplegic, and to see that the glory that she's brought in the Lord through this tragedy, that she understands that God was doing a work, that God was bigger than her circumstances, and she's going to bring him glory. As we go to Romans, just really quickly, for as soon as I find it, there's Romans chapter 5. This is a great piece. For us as Christians, when you're going through a hard time to try to understand the difficulty. He says, therefore, verse one, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained an introduction or access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult, or the word is glory, in our tribulations. That we exult, we rejoice in tribulations. That doesn't seem, that's what they call counterintuitive. It doesn't seem to make sense. But Paul tells the believers that in Christ, when we face difficulties, we rejoice. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance Proven character and proven character hope and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. And so Paul steps back when he sees suffering. He sees the bigger picture that God is at work chipping away at our hearts, changing our character, conforming us into the image of Christ. 
that we've been brought into the household of God. And in the household of God, there are standards that God wants to work in our life. Every family, when their children get out of line, we don't do this in our family. You're a Hanson. We have higher expectations for the Hanson name. I don't know. Maybe not so much in our culture, but it used to be that way. And certainly in other cultures around the world. And the author of Hebrews, as we turn there towards the, keep going towards the back, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7, the author here talks about this chipping away, that if, that if, that if we're in God's family, God's love for us, his faithfulness, as the psalmist said, that's where our affliction comes from. And in Hebrews chapter 12, I think I chose to pick up in verse 7, the author of Hebrews says, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. If you're a child now, recognize that your dad and mom are not God. They make decisions that are as best to them and their short-sightedness and their the, just to the best of they can. And dads and moms, if you make mistakes, it's okay to apologize when you err. You don't have to pretend like you're actually God. I got distracted. Okay, for they disciplined us for a short time. It seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. I have that one highlighted. That's like the understatement of the day. But sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Heading back to the psalm, the psalmist got it. I know a few years ago when I, when I left the SEAL teams and I became a pastor, I was still like, it, it was still in the very feeling funny stage like I thought it was a joke, like I'm not, I'm really, I felt more Navy SEAL than pastor, but a SEAL buddy of mine had, he, he was engaged and he said, Hey, can I, um, will you marry us? And I said, I'd be happy to let's meet. He was a believer and him and his, his believing fiance, they were living together. And I never even I just kind of said, well, what do you think about this? I just asked a lot of questions. I never said that I wouldn't marry them. I just kind of was like, now, have you thought about stuff? Have you thought about alternatives? How can, if you're both confessing Christians, how, like, what do you think about this? And he said, well, I'll get back to you. Well, when he got back to me, they wanted nothing to do with me. And then she blogged against me. It was the first time I've been blogged against. And I'll never forget the blog that she blogged against me. It was, in in summary, it basically said, Christians are so condemning. God wants you just the way that you are. He loves you just as you are. Which is true. Christ died for you while you were still in sin. But see, the thing is, he doesn't want to leave us there. He wants to do a work in us. 
And the psalmist gets it. That as he's facing this persecution, he says, I know your judgments are righteous. And that in faithfulness, you have afflicted me. And my prayer is that as we endure suffering, as we go through persecution, don't necessarily jump to the woe is me. The world is against me. With learning, we can pray as the psalmist prayed, Lord, I know you're bigger than this. And Lord, I trust in your faithfulness. Lord, help me to learn the lesson that you're teaching me in this. Lord, help me to rejoice in the midst of this suffering. And maybe you're in sin. Maybe you did something dumb. Or maybe God is actually chipping away and making you, conforming you into the image of Christ. And then he says, Oh, may your loving kindness comfort me. According to your word, your servant, may your compassion come to me that I may live for your laws, my delight. And so as he recognizes who God is and that he rejoices in God's faithfulness as this affliction is happening, as God is conforming his image, as he's hurt, he then says, Lord, I know you're compassionate. Lord, now that you've cut me, will you heal me? Will you, will you, will you mend me? Amy Carmichael was a missionary to India. She served for like 57 years. She never took a furlough. She adopted all kind of children. She wrote prolifically. That's a word, right? I think I I make up words all the time. Roll with it. In the back of my Bible, I have a bunch of quotes just just to prove it to you guys. If I go places and I hear something, I like write it in the back. One of these written in pencil is a quote from her. And she said, if you've never heard from the word of God, you probably have never heard from the word of God. That's powerful. Think about that. If you've never heard from the word of God, you probably have never heard from the word of God. The word cuts us. I can't tell you how many times as I read that I just get so convicted i realize that how sinful i am and that my nature is so against god's word and god uses that to convict me to the core see but it's a beautiful thing because conviction is not condemnation there's peace in christ and he cuts and he he it hurts but then all of a sudden the word that cut me begins to heal me and through the process we become more christ-like It worries me that the people who can just read through the Bible like a textbook. Oh, the word tells us that it's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. It cuts, it prunes. It helps us to be more like Christ, that we could walk with him ever so closely. And the psalmist gets it. Verse 78, may the arrogant be ashamed, for they subvert me with a lie. But I shall meditate on your precepts. There are those that are coming against me. They're lying. They're getting me off course. But I'm going to meditate on your precepts. The word. I'm not the best at memorizing scripture. That's not an excuse not to memorize. I think one of the beauties of memorization. That as we force ourselves to commit verses to our heart. It forces us to meditate upon it. There are verses, especially the ones I seem to have 
a, a terrible time memorizing certain ones. But then I have my little three by five card and I go over it, I go over it, I go over it. I try to remember each phrase. But in that process, what happens is it's, it's like beef jerky. The best thing about beef jerky is when you're hiking and you're starving, you can just gnaw on it forever. You get down to the strains and the fat and you just chew and you chew and you chew. Memorization helps us to chew on the word of God that we meditate about, that we, we think about it. And it's in those moments, I think, that God touches us in our deepest core. So he's got these people coming upon him, but he meditates on the precepts. Verse 79, he goes on to say, may those who fear you turn to me, even those who know your testimonies. I think this could be David. This is a man who is in leadership. He said, there are those that are persecuting me, but I rest upon your word. I, I meditate upon your precepts, your truths. Lord, may my life as I'm living, may those who fear you, may those who walk with you, may they turn to me. And you get this image of following. And like every good God, godly leader, verse 880, he recognizes that the most important thing is his heart and his walk with God. May my heart be blameless in your statutes. So that the purpose clause, why does he want to be blameless in God's statutes so that I will not be ashamed? He wants to walk with God. If we turn over to hold your place in Psalm 119 to first John, the next book we're going to study, which I'm like, I am so excited to get to this book. And over in first John, it's towards the back of the Bible in the very, very back. If you hit revelation, you've gone too far. And in 1 John 2.28, there's this beautiful picture. John, who had, he, he started out as the youngest disciple, that he was almost like Jesus' kid brother who teased him. And he started out with so much zeal that Jesus nicknamed him, him and his brother, the sons of thunder. Well, this stage in his writing, he's the only apostolic person that's alive. He's now an older man. God has so changed his heart, he's became known as the apostle of love because he only saw himself as one whom Christ loved. And as he nears the end of his life, and I see this with old Christians, whether it's Chuck Smith or George Farrington, like as men or women who've walked with the Lord get closer to the end of the race, the only thing they talk about is the rapture or the end and like, like, it's funny being around George and you see younger girls like, I mean, I want the rapture, but I really want to get married and have kids. And like, like, so if God can, you know, press pause. But the older, like, when, when their time of meeting the Lord, whether it's through death or the rapture, that's all they can focus on. I picture a man like this that writes verse 28. And he says, now, little children, abide in him that they would walk closely with Jesus. The reason he wants him to walk closely with Jesus to abide in him so that when he appears, because Jesus is coming back, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him and shame in his coming. It's telling me that if you're in Christ and you're not walking in him and you're in sin, we're not perfect. But Jesus could appear. And it could be that you don't have to shrink away in shame like, oh, no, 
Now, it's not like the bumper sticker that I saw a few years ago that said, Jesus is coming back, look busy. It's not, that's not the idea. But that, that Jesus could come back and you could be in an action or your heart could be in a position that you could be in a fight with your spouse. You could be angry about the person who cut you off. And at that moment that he appears, your first response is like, oh. But John says if you abide with him, if you walk with him, when he appears, there's hope that we don't have to shriek away in shame. We can see him and just lift up our arms. Abba, Father, Lord, you're here. We rejoice. And Psalm 119, verse 80, the psalmist says, May my heart be blameless in your statutes so that I will not be ashamed. The next stanza, verse 81. He says, My soul languishes for your salvation. I wait for your word. Now, in the Old Testament, a lot of times this word salvation isn't used in the sense that we think of spiritual salvation, that you're dead in your sins and transgressions apart from God, and that through Christ you're saved, that you have eternal salvation. So often the context is literally that you would be saved from physical duress. And in this sense, I believe that the context here is that he's talking about physical help, We'll see in this stanza that there are those who are digging a pit for him. They're trying to kill him. They're coming after him aggressively. And he languishes for God's help. I wait for your word. He says, my eyes fail with longing for your word. Oh, man, that one's convicting. My eyes have failed a lot recently. My eyes get tired. Most people today in the last week... You can see him, bags under their eyes. It's like, you've been watching the Olympics, haven't you? You didn't go to bed soon enough. Our eyes get tired, sure. But I think most of us, our eyes get tired from watching the Olympics, watching TV, Facebook, surfing the internet, doing whatever. But you get this picture that this guy, he's just in the word. And times of fasting for media... Are an awesome time. Deborah is like one of, we're like buddies. We've gone through these, like when I was without internet and I was like, oh, my, I had to get to certain places for work. Like I'm like, had to get to places, but it was like so refreshing taking a month on. And I got an email from her about the internet. I'm like, oh man, she's going to be critical of me because I'm like not available as much because I just don't like respond quick enough. But it was like this huge, long email about, oh, I went without cable. I went without internet. No, anything for how long was it? She went way longer than I went. Four years. And she's like, during that season of just cutting the cord from media was was the time of like spiritual growth. And so when I see this, my eyes fail with longing for your word. Oh, man, that just, there's a sweetness there. There's something about those times in our life when everything's been stripped away and we have nowhere else to go and we just pour over the word. Those are the times that we grow the most. And I think that's why God brings affliction into our life. Because we don't learn as well when we're happy-go-lucky and everything's just going along. His eyes fail. And while I say when, notice it doesn't say if. Circle when. He hasn't lost hope. While I say when will you comfort me? 
He's in a dry season in his walk with the Lord. He maybe doesn't feel as close with God during this. And he's crying out to God, when will you comfort me? Though I've become like a wineskin in the smoke. I love the Old Testament. They're not Germans. Like I have a German mind. Just tell me the facts. But the Old Testament, these Eastern cultures that speak in pictures. I'm like a wineskin in the smoke. When they were done with the bag that carried the wine, it was a leather bag. When they were done with it, they would hang it up in the smoke from the fire. It would get brittle and dry and broken. And he's there looking at this wine bags, most likely that are all brittle. There'll be no good for wine or carrying any kind of fluid. He says, Lord, that's me. I'm just longing for you, Lord. But I don't forget your statues. And this is a picture of pressing on. Hold your place again and go with me to Philippians chapter 3. Paul under house arrest. Paul pouring his life out in service of the Lord. In these times, he writes some of the most beautiful things in the Bible. And this is one of my favorites. So in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, we'll start there. Paul is under house arrest. He's writing the church in Philippi to encourage them. They'd sent a gift from their pastor, Epaphroditus, and he almost dies on the journey. And they don't know what's going on, and they're discouraged. And Paul writes to them in verse 7, but whatever things were gained to me, his, his religion, his, he was one of the top Jews, He was the king of the world as far as religion came. And if you want to read the first six verses, you can learn more about that. Whatever things were gained in me, he's referring to those things. Those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. That is a horrible watering down of it. It literally is dung. All those things are dung so that I might gain Christ and may be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his what? Sufferings? Being conformed to his death. In order that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is the verse I'm trying to get to. Not that I have already obtained it. Or have already become perfect. But I press on. So that I may lay hold of that for which. Also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do forgetting what lies Behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Throughout the Bible, those who were zealous for God, those who God used to pen the scriptures, there's this commitment of pressing on. When the last Rocky movie came out, Christianity jumped all over that one clip 
where Rocky Balboa's son was starting to get a little weak on him. And he gives this great speech. If I thought about this beforehand, I would have played it for you. But he basically tells his son, he's like, hey, it's not about how many times you get knocked down. It's about how many times you get up and you keep walking. And I'm not Rocky Balboa, so I'm falling way short. I should have Googled it to get the speech. I would have read it for you. But I see this image of of the saints throughout the scriptures who are so focused on the then, the being with Christ, being with God in heaven, that they don't care what their earthly circumstances are. They press on, they cling to him, they walk with him. Verse 84, how many are the days of your servant? How long do I have to live? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? Lord, I know that they're wrong and I know that you're just God and I know that judgment's coming. Is it this afternoon? I'm ready. The arrogant have dug pits for me. Verse 85, men who are not in accord with your law. All your commandments are faithful. They're coming after me, but I know your word is true. They have persecuted me with a lie. Circle, highlight the greatest prayer in the whole Bible. Help me. Have you been there? This is the greatest prayer. Sometimes we think that God needs lofty $3 theological words that are long and verbose. Some of the best prayers I've prayed are simply this. Lord, help me. Lord, I don't even, how am I, this is, help, help, beautiful prayer, help me. They almost destroyed me on earth, but as for me, I did not forsake your precepts. Revive me according to your loving kindness. So that the purpose clause again, so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. He, he desires to fight the fight that whether he lives or dies, that he would bring glory to God. He's keeping his precepts. Lord, give me strength. Lord, I want to keep your testimony. You've created me in your image and I want to bear your image properly. All humanity was created in the image of God. This whole falling short, we're falling short We use that. It's falling short of the image in which we were created in. That's sin. We want to be a good witness to him. May our lives reflect who he is. The next stanza. Moving on. I got time. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. I can't tell you how many times I've heard Brother Alberto say that. In the hospital, as he's holding on to us, going through heart surgery, Ever since I've known, I can't do his accent. But I, when I read this, I just hear Alberto. His word is settled in heaven forever. That's it, brother. That was like, I think that was more leprechaun sounding than Hispanic. But it's like the psalmist says, like, hey, Lord, your word, this is settled. This isn't shifting sands. It doesn't change with time. And in the last week, I can't tell you. The amount of discussions I've been in, people who aren't walking with the Lord, people who don't know Christ, and they just refer this as a it's a it's a it's a book of antiquity. It's just a book that was for then. And I'm not even convinced it was for then. But the word 
That it's settled, that it is forever eternal, that it, the word will not fade away. Second Timothy 3.16, I should call it an Awanas kid. Because I think this is the Awanas verse, is it? Or is it not? And I see this is where my bio, now I'm nervous because I just called out all the Awana kids. Okay, Deborah's got it. What is it? What is, what is it? Can you memorize it? No, that's the one is verse. This is not. Okay, let's go there. <laughs> let's go there. Let's see if we can. This is a sword drill. Where are we at? Second Timothy 3.16. Um, says, all scripture, circle all, Genesis through Revelation. There's no distinction in God. This is revelation came through time. There's so much beauty in the Old Testament, this, this foretelling of the redeeming work of God. That's why we still study the Old Testament. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, or the person of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. This is how we learn about God. Forever, your word is settled in heaven. That's why we at Valley Baptist Church, we go through books of the Bible. This is what God has revealed to us. It's not about chasing fads, about what feels good. The answer to life is found in this book. He goes on to say, your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. You establish the earth and it stands. They stand this day according to... To your ordinances for all things are your servants. Colossians 1.15. We just went through Colossians. That all things were created by Christ. All things hold together by him. God is the creator and sustainer of all things. There was a quote I stumbled upon. From Don. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity writes this. When you argue against him, you are arguing against the very power that makes you able to argue at all. It is like cutting off the branch you are sitting on. And the psalmist, as he focuses on the word, he recognizes that everything we have, everything that we are, everything that's around us, it's because God creates it and he holds it all together. And even though these people are coming after me, it doesn't matter because God is in control. He goes on to say, verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts for them. You have revived me. Now it's past tense. But the word was able to, to minister to his soul that he's able to go on. And in verse 94, this is our conclusion. These last three verses really summarize the three things in these three stanzas. The first thing he says, I am yours. Save me. And the question is, have you ever said that to the Lord? Verse 73, your hands made me and fashioned me. Lord, you're my creator. I'm yours. Will you save me? That's what God wants to hear from us. He loves us so much that he sent Christ to to die for your sins, for my sins. That great links that he could have this relationship with us again. That he would bridge the gap that our sin created. He says, for I've sought your precepts. 
Like, have you really investigated the precepts of teaching the claims of Christ? It's okay if you're struggling, if you're on this journey, search. We care so much about this quest that that's why we provide those case for Christ for free. And I love that they always go away, either because people are taking them as one. People come to the church, they take them, and people from here, it's a tool that we can give to our non-believing friends. Here, investigate the precepts. And he says, I've sought your precepts. The wicked wait to destroy me. I shall diligently consider your testimonies. And this picture that he sought, that he's diligently studied. And diligently studied isn't just coming to church and letting me preach the word to you for an hour once a week. We believe strongly in the priesthood of the believer, meaning That you, if you've trusted in Christ, you're indwelt by the Spirit, and the Spirit will illuminate the text for you, and that God wants you to be in the Word, that you would grow, that you would diligently study, that you would grow closer to Him by reading about what He's given. And He says in verse 96, I've seen a limit or an end to all perfection. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. I'd encourage you, life is discouraging. Like there's a lot of bad that happens around us. We live in tough times. It's always hard. Sin kind of made it hard. We've got to toil the soil. But but as men, we don't necessarily toil the soil for our vocation. You go to work. Work isn't fun. Work is discouraging. The people around us can, can bring us down, that we can go through situations, life, illness, injuries, all kind of things too far to like to list all of the discouraging stuff. But the secret is found in the word that we would trust upon God, that we would lean upon him for our comfort, for our strength in the midst of life, that we would focus on that day, not on today. And so, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day, Lord. We thank you for your word. And Father, we pray. Lord, wherever we are, there's so many of us in this room. We're in different places in our journey. And Father, I pray that you would encourage us in our walk with you. And Father, we pray that um, you would light that fire again, Lord, that we would have passion for your word, that we would have a desire to, to crack open the Bible throughout the week, that we would come to you in prayer and ask you to speak to us through your word. Father, whatever situations we're going through, Lord, there's so much that can discourage us, that can weight us down. And so, Lord, we turn to you. We ask, as the psalmist prayed, that you would revive us. Lord, that you would help us to sense your presence in a very real way in our lives. We love you, Father, and we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen.